New to Medicare? Start now. Go to MyHealthPolicy.com to learn about some of the top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including plans for $0 a month in plan premiums, low out-of-pocket costs, and expansive provider networks. If you're thinking about a Medicare Advantage plan, MyHealthPolicy.com is a great place to go to find a plan that meets your needs. Learn more about your options. Even talk with a licensed insurance agent. MyHealthPolicy.com. Good morning and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. Glad to have you with me. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Y'all, we got uh, a ton of news uh, and we'll get to the Atlantic article. You do need to know that uh, yesterday, Black Lives Matters protesters uh, shut down an event uh, featuring Kelly Leffler and Tom Cotton up in Cumming, Georgia. They were on their way to Gainesville. They were at an event, and this happened. They wouldn't leave. It was kind of funny, actually. You, you can watch the videos of this. I put it up on Instagram. If you want to follow me on Instagram at EW Erickson, you can see the video of the protesters. Uh, there, there weren't a lot of them, uh, and, and there was some speculation that did, did Leffler set this up? And it turns out it was a uh, former Democratic lieutenant governor uh, candidate uh, who now leads some Black Lives Matters organization upset with Kelly Leffler over her stance on Black Lives Matters and also Tom Cotton, who was campaigning with Leffler. And so they just tried to disrupt the event. Uh, and uh, so Leffler couldn't do I mean, they wouldn't leave. There were no there was no law enforcement to shoo them away. So. Uh, they spoke for a little bit and headed over to Gainesville for a different event. Um, we'll get into more of this later. Also, Speaker Ralston has endorsed Doug Collins. We'll, we'll get there. Uh, but I want to begin with something else. I, 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 I want to discuss something that shouldn't be political. And it's not getting enough attention. And if you've listened to this program in the last year since we've been on, one of the things that I feel very strongly about is that there are occasions where I should talk about the stuff you don't know about and should know about, even if it's a topic you may not necessarily care about. You want the 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 Trump stuff, the Pelosi getting her hair done, the 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 Joe Biden flubbing something stuff. But occasionally there actually is really big news that you don't know about, you don't care about. It's it's not getting national coverage and it should actually get some coverage. And to begin there, I want to play an advertisement for you. Uh Apple Inc. You, I'm, I'm always, you know, I grew up saying Apple computer. Apple has launched a new advertising campaign to highlight privacy on the iPhone. And it, it's the perfect place to begin. I browsed eight sites for divorce attorneys today. I browsed eight sites for divorce attorneys today. My login for everything is Pauline at PaulineFu.com. I love working with you. Me too. Red heart emoji. Pink heart emoji. Yellow heart emoji. Blue heart emoji. I hate Lee though. Puke emoji. Puke emoji. I am currently reading an article titled 10 ways to keep sweaty hands from holding you back. My home is in 1,000 feet. My heart rate is currently 150. 151, 152, and back down to 150. On March 15th at 9.16 a.m., I purchased prenatal vitamins and four pregnancy tests. tagline on the ad is is some things weren't meant to be shared iphone doesn't share them privacy that's the iphone uh i I, it's a clever ad if you ask me 
and, and a lot of that stuff. Uh, you've had experiences with that. In fact, uh, I, I bet every one of you has a story where you are having a conversation with someone and suddenly you start realize you're getting advertisements for the thing you're talking about. And th- this actually happened my sisters and me a while back. Uh, my middle sister was, we were in a, a text message group uh, on, we all three have iPhones, blue bubbles on, on the message app. And my middle sister says that she is tired. And lo and behold, she starts seeing advertisements show up on Facebook for insomnia. And we're laughing about it, how creepy it is. And she says, she types to us, maybe she should start joking about being pregnant again. Uh, she's not. And uh, it, it, she, she started talking about that. And, and my older sister congratulated her on her pregnancy. Uh, and in Facebook, she starts seeing ads for maternity issues. Y'all have had this happen to you. So, you know, uh, Chris Burns with Dynamic Money, he uh, he and his family went with us to Hilton Head for summer vacation for a week uh, during the 4th of July. And my father-in-law and Chris were talking about a financial services company they were both familiar with. And they both started seeing ads for that company on their phones after their conversation. Now, the logical explanation for that is that one of them couldn't remember the name of the company and Googled it, and their IP addresses were shared over that common hotspot at that house, and and ads started serving, but it's creepy. Or if you have an iPhone, your iPhones have gotten so dynamic in planning what you're planning on doing for the day. Uh, I actually had a guy call me in my evening show yesterday when I was talking about this and said uh, he normally goes to Costco on a on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, and he went on a Saturday. He told his wife he's going to Costco. He hopped in his car, and Siri already had the directions pulled up on how to get there and how long it would take, and it freaked him out. Your phones are listening to you, and companies really are spying on you. And I I bring this up because Apple is releasing iOS 14 and the tracking industry of ad trackers led by Facebook is upset. Uh, And so Apple may delay enforcing the tracking for a few months. And now federal regulators are uh, potentially getting involved to go after Apple for daring to block people from tracking you. Now there's a company called uh, Branch and its CEO, Alex Austin, uh, has a company that specializes in measuring the effectiveness of ads and mobile ads. He calls Apple's changes unworkable for the app ecosystem. He actually writes, Apple's move has gone too far, disproportionately disrupting a vibrant app ecosystem by throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Now, there's a website I read all the time on tech stuff, daringfireball.net. Uh, the author, John Gruber, great guy, uh, totally, totally uh, divergent from all of you on your politics. I'll put it to you that way. Uh, I, I want to read to you some of what he's written. I got to dodge the F-bombs, make sure I don't get in trouble here. The entitlement of these <clears throat> is just off the charts. They have zero right, none, to the tracking they've been getting away with. We as a society have implicitly accepted it because we never really noticed. You, the user, have no way of seeing it happen. Our brains are naturally attuned to detect and visually reject with outrage and alarm real-world intrusions into our privacy. Real-world marketers could never get away with tracking us online does. Imagine if you went out shopping, you went into a drugstore, you examined a few bottles of sunscreen but left the store without purchasing anything, and then immediately a stranger approached you with an offer for sunscreen. 
screen. Such an encounter would trigger a fight-or-flight reaction. The needle on your innate creepometer would shoot straight into the red, not to mention that if real-world tracking were like online tracking, you'd get the same creepy offer to buy sunscreen even if you just bought some sunscreen. Tracking-based offers are creepy and at times annoyingly stupid. Or imagine if you found out that public billboards were taking photos of people who glance at them, logging those photos to a database and using facial recognition to match them with photos taken at point-of-sale terminals and retail stores. That way, if, say, you were photographed looking at an ad for a soft drink and later, hours, days, weeks, purchased the same soft drink, the billboard advertisement you glanced at hours, days, or weeks before could get credit for your purchase. We wouldn't tolerate it. But that's how online ad tracking works. The tracking industry is correct. Apple's iOS 14 users are going to overwhelmingly deny permission to track them. That's not because Apple's permission dialogue is unnecessarily scaring them. It's because Apple's permission dialogue is accurately explaining what is going on in plain language, and it is repulsive. Now, what exactly does it say? Here is what it says. This app would like permission to track you across apps and websites owned by other companies. Your data will be used to deliver personalized ads to you. Allow the tracking or ask the app not to track you. That's all Apple's phone will do if you update to it. The tracking permission dialogue is something no sane person would agree to because this sort of tracking is something no sane person would want. Just because there's now a multi-billion dollar industry, and this is the key point, pay attention to this point, please. Just because there is a multi-billion dollar industry based on the abject betrayal of our privacy doesn't mean the sociopaths who built it have any right whatsoever to continue getting away with it. They talk in circles, but their arguments boil down to entitlement. They think our privacy is theirs for the taking because they've been getting away with taking it without our knowledge and it's valuable to them. No action Apple can take against the tracking industry is too strong. Now, on the opposite side of the spectrum, in fairness to the people who do track you, what they say is you are being delivered amazing things. Facebook, Google, Twitter, uh, the, the app environment, uh, all of the innovation that you have out there, so much of it free, and in exchange, you get served up ads. And so they get your data, they use your data, and they can target you more specifically with ads they think really do use a good service. We have seen now a, a bespoke, a, a rise of bespoke industries on social media. So, for example, I've been looking at, uh, I'm, I'm getting into Instagram right now. Uh, I've been looking on Instagram uh, at some gym shorts, at a particular brand of gym shorts. And let's see, I'm scrolling through. Uh, let's see, there's a, there's a uh, coffee store ad. That's perfect for me. I follow a lot of food and coffee stuff on there. Uh, oh, there's a, there's an ad for shorts, legend shorts, something that I'm actually interested in and on and on. And I don't see a ton of ads, mind you, but they're there. They are there. And I see ads for like butcher box and stuff like that. Cause I cook a lot. Y'all know how much I cook. And I would have never discovered these, these, uh, businesses, but for the specific ability to be specifically tracked by on Instagram, to get my profile. At the same time, it really is an invasion of my privacy, is it not? And yours as well. And increasingly, every single person I know, everybody, I don't know that I don't know a person without a story of the industry tracking you so much it creeps you out. My mother-in-law flew to Arizona a while back. 
She ordered on Delta. She used her Amex card. She ordered a particular type of cheese plate. Uh, you know, they, they, they weren't serving foods, but you could buy this cheese plate. She bought the cheese plate. She came home. She saw that brand of cheese ads on Facebook. My wife, I bought a Rectech smoker. My wife has started seeing Rectech uh, ads on her phone. Why? Because her phone and my phone in the same house go out through a common IP point through our wireless router. And so they're ha- they're having a hard time distinguishing her and me. She's been seeing that stuff. If I buy a product, she starts seeing it. Now, part of that is bizarre because I've already bought the product. Why do I need to see ads for the product when I've already bought the product? But unfortunately, what's happening here, Apple is delaying this because it's upset the industry that they may fully protect our privacy. You can always opt in. And federal regulators are wondering if Apple is breaking some sort of actual needed infrastructure. No, they're not. They're protecting our privacy. And Google should do the same, except Google can't because Google's whole business model is on data acquisition. If you use Google, you are the product. And Google sells your information to advertisers who can then target you to make money off of you. And that's it, it sounds disparaging, but that's what it is. To a degree, as much as I think Facebook is distinguishable from the other tech companies out there, Facebook to a degree, you are in, in effect kind of a product for Facebook because they acquire amazing amounts of data on you and then can sell it to advertisers. And here's the thing, with Facebook data, now with Google data, they can sell it to offline advertisers. So for example, there's a catalog that comes to our house at Christmas. And every year that catalog comes, that catalog is printed. I'm not going to give you the name of the company, but that that catalog is almost bespoke. It puts in the products that it sells that it thinks I'm going to like the best. Not all of its products, just the ones it thinks I'm going to like the best. And you know what? I bought out of that catalog because it's good. it offers me a lot of stuff. And if you get the catalog, you're going to see different stuff because we've reached the economies of scale where stuff with businesses at that end of the spectrum can do that. And I've gotten great things from it, but it also really creeps me out. And the problem is not that the ad companies want to use it to sell you and me products. The problem is that other people want to use it to build psychographical profiles of you, figure out who you are and persuade you, get you to vote for certain candidates, target you with misinformation, target you with disinformation, uh, try to build a portfolio of, of information on you that they can sell to other people to either determine that you're a good person or a bad person, hireable, not hireable, all of these sorts of things. It sounds very 22nd, 23rd, 24th century, and yet here it is happening to us. And the one company that is actually standing up to do something about it is potentially caving on it because an entire industry has been formed around selling your information and they're upset about it. Do you know when you when you update your, if you got an Apple device, the rest of you don't have this problem, but you need to know what's happening. On your Apple devices in the last couple of years now, you suddenly get a pop-up box saying this, this app wants to use Bluetooth. Now, none of these apps need to use Bluetooth, but it wants to use Bluetooth. Do you know why? Because there are big box stores out there that you go into to shop at. And they have Bluetooth trackers. And you walk into the store and the Bluetooth tracker can detect your Bluetooth signal and figure out where you're going in the store. Because other apps use Bluetooth to detect you and your buying patterns and then they sell that information. And together between the big box store and the online app retailers who are using your Bluetooth signal on your phone, they can build a profile of not only who you are, but where you went into a store. So for example, if if they can tell that you went over to the grill section and you didn't buy a grill, you're going to start seeing grill ads online. It's all very creepy. It's all very stalkerish. And this happens all the time. And 
something actually I think at this point needs to be done. Uh, The left in America has always been very big on the idea that there is a right to privacy. And the right has over time accepted the idea that constitutionally there is a right to privacy, even though it's not there. They don't go as far as the left saying that it impacts the right to abortion and things like that. But at some point, if if we have a right to privacy that needs to extend online and federal regulators, instead of harassing Apple for daring to give it to us, probably actually need to be supportive of efforts to help us with our privacy online. And you yourself need to be more informed about how these things happen online. I want to give you some examples of how it happens when we come back. Jim reminds me uh, of something I was talking about yesterday on on the other show. There's this it's it's a very sad article, um, but I want to read it to you because it gives you more information on on the tracking that these companies do. And I want to explain to you how this tracking works. Uh, This was written by Jillian Brockwell back in 2018 in The Washington Post. Dear tech companies, I know you knew I was pregnant. It's my fault. I couldn't resist those Instagram hashtags, 30 weeks pregnant, baby bump, and silly me, I even clicked once or twice on the maternity wear ads Facebook served up. What can I say? I'm your ideal engaged user. You surely saw my heartfelt thank you post to all my girlfriends who came to my baby shower and the sister-in-law who flew in from Arizona for said shower, tagging me in her photos. You probably saw me Googling holiday dress maternity plaid and baby safe crib paint. And I bet Amazon.com even told you my due date, January 24th, when I created that prime registry. But didn't you also see me Googling Braxton Hicks versus preterm labor and baby not moving? Did you not see my three days of social media silence uncommon for a high-frequency user like me? And then the announcement posts with keywords like heartbroken and problem and stillborn and the 200 teardrop emoticons from my friends. Is that not something you could track? You see, there are 24,000 stillbirths in the United States every year and millions more among your worldwide users. And let me tell you what social media is like when you finally come home from the hospital with the emptiest arms in the world after you and your husband have spent days sobbing in bed and you pick up your phone for a few minutes of distraction before the next whale. It's exactly crushingly the same as it was when your baby was still alive. A pee in the pod, motherhood, maternity, latched mama, every damn Etsy Chotsky that I was considering for the nurse nursery. And when we millions of brokenhearted people finally click, helpfully click, I don't want to see this ad, and even answer your why with the cruel but true, it's not relevant to me. Do you know what your algorithm decides, tech companies? It decides you've given birth, assumes a happy result and deludes you with ads for the best nursing bras, DVDs about getting your baby to sleep through the night. I would give anything to hear him cry at all. And the best strollers to grow with your baby. Mine will forever be four pounds, one ounce. And then after all that, experience swoops in with the lowest tracking blow of all, a spam email encouraging you to finish registering your baby with them. I never even started, but sure. To track his credit throughout the life he'll never leave lead. Please, tech companies, I implore you, if your algorithms are smart enough to realize that I was pregnant or that I'd given birth, then surely they can be smart enough to realize my baby died and advertise to me accordingly, or maybe, just maybe, leave me alone. A Facebook representative responded to this and noted that, you know, you can actually turn off parenting ads, but you shouldn't have to. If the algorithms are, this lady is right, smart enough to realize what's going on, they should be smart enough to realize 
what's going on later. They should be smart enough to realize the bad news. And they don't want to realize that. They just want to sell you products, positive products in the lingo. It is a massive invasion of privacy. And our information that we're giving them is way more valuable. Taylor on Twitter is listening emailed. This makes this great point. Our information to them is way more valuable than the app they're giving to us. And we shouldn't have to tolerate this. But how does it actually happen? I want to discuss that when we come back. All right, I, I got before we get back into privacy, if I just got to play part of this for you, this is just the greatest thing. I don't know if y'all have seen it. Uh, Kelly and McEnany at the uh, Kaylee McEnany at the White House press conference yesterday uh, it opened her briefing with two TV screens behind her playing the Nancy Pelosi salon video on repeat. Good afternoon, everyone. Two briefings ago, I asked, where is Nancy Pelosi? Today, I can announce we have found Nancy Pelosi. Um, as you can see, we found Nancy Pelosi going into her hair salon. We will be playing the video on loop for all of you to see during the duration of this introduction. Nancy Pelosi was not in the halls of Congress when I asked where she was. She was not working in good faith to make a deal for the American people. Nope, Nancy Pelosi was found in San Francisco at a hair salon where she was indoors, even though salons in California are not only open for outdoor service. Apparently, the rules do not apply to Speaker Nancy Pelosi. She wants small businesses to stay shut down, but only reopen for her convenience. Do as I say, not as I do, says Nancy Pelosi. And she, she just played the video on repeat. That was fantastic. That that was that was very well played. Uh, by, by and, and of course, members of the media were upset about it. Uh, they, they actually members of the press corps actually complained uh, that Kaylee McEnany played the video of Pelosi on repeat while she talked about uh, trying to negotiate with the Democrats, and Pelosi was nowhere to be found. Well, now we know why. And also. Um, protesters actually showed up at Nancy Pelosi's house and they hung hair dryers and curlers and curling irons from a tree outside her home. <laughs> oh, that's, that's clever. I, I do have to give them that. I, I, I gotta, I gotta give them that. Notice they're not yelling at Pelosi. Notice they're not disturbing. The they're just hanging blow dryers and curlers and curling irons from the tree. Uh, quite different from when the left shows up at your home. <laughs> you don't have to worry about the house burning down uh, when the right shows up. Okay, I, let me explain this. And by the way, uh, I know that you guys probably have these have stories, and and I'm I'm happy for you to share them. Eight seven seven nine seven Eric eight seven seven nine seven three seven four two five is the number. Uh, and and I, the main reason I'm talking about that, I'm so tired of all the political news, and and this is actually is important news. If you're just tuning in. Apple is about to release uh, iOS 14. It's going to have a serious privacy blocking uh, technology or privacy tracker blocking, meaning it's going to be very difficult for tech companies to track you around the Internet. And to the extent that Facebook and other companies are complaining uh, that Apple is going too far and, and app companies are complaining that Apple is, is going to deny them their business model uh, because they track your information and sell it. And they're upset, so Apple's going to delay it, and I don't think they should. They should protect the privacy of their of their customers. Now, 
question is, will they do it and just provide an inroad for some of these companies? I don't know. But I do want to tell you, I, I have spent time talking to different people at, at different tech companies about how they track you. Because you and I all have stories where we've been in conversation with someone or text message with someone, and we are, we're getting a sense of why are these ads showing up? We haven't talked to anybody about this. I had somebody email me last night uh, after I talked about this topic and said they were actually in their, um, they were in their boss's office and their boss was talking about getting sand out of his pool. The boss was talking to my email correspondent about getting sand out of the boss's pool, how to do it, what would be the best thing. And my email correspondent said that evening at home, the first ads that he saw when he got on Facebook were ads for pool vacuums and ads for sand removal. Him, how is this happening? Let, let me explain to you what I am told. So I'm going to use the hypothetical of two guys at a bar uh, because this actually isn't a hypothetical. This has happened, and it's an example that the tech companies use, and it should kind of creep you out. So you and a friend are at a bar. Your friend has returned from Bath in, in the United Kingdom uh, on the west side of the country, old Roman town, now a, a, a very pretty city with Roman ruins, uh, and... You're you're talking about the your trip to Bath. Uh, the guy is talking about his trip to Bath, and then you go home, and you start seeing advertisements for the tourism industry in Bath, England. Were they listening to your phone call, or I'm sorry, were they listening to your conversation in the bar? Were they using your microphone on your phone? to eavesdrop on you and your friend, and now they're selling you stuff. What the tech companies say is no. What they say is that you and your friend's phones are next to each other in the bar within 30 feet of each other, uh, and they can detect a strong signal, so they know they're actually pretty close to each other. And because they're super close to each other, you have an app, your friend has an app that sells your Bluetooth data, and the Bluetooth data has been sold. It goes into a computer somewhere, and they can tell that your phone and his phone were next to each other. And because your friend has just come back from Bath, England, and is showing people pictures, his showing people pictures online is tracked. His putting pictures of Bath, England on Facebook is tracked. His using Google Photos to save his photos is tracked. And all of that information is sold. And so they can reasonably conclude that because the two of you haven't been next to each other in several weeks based on your Bluetooth data, and because your friend is is oversharing Bath, England photos, it is reasonable to conclude that your friend talked to you about his vacation to Bath, England. Therefore, it is reasonable con to conclude you would have interest in it. Therefore, it is reasonable to conclude that they should serve you ads about it. That is the explanation. Tech companies say they're not using your microphone to eavesdrop on your conversation, that they don't have to use your microphone to eavesdrop on your conversation. They use your Bluetooth signal and your Wi-Fi signal, and through the selling of your Bluetooth and your Wi-Fi, they can get a sense of who you've been around. They can get a sense of who you regularly come into contact with. They can understand where you go shopping. Some stores actually serve up uh, Bluetooth detection 
for these companies. They put them in, they do a deal, they make some money. So you walk into the store, your phone is detected. Uh, they've developed a psychographic profile for the person who owns that phone. They can figure out it's you based on social media. They can follow you around in the store. They can tell where you've been in the store. They can tell what you've looked at in the store based on where you are in the store, and they can serve you ads based on that. They can. I, I told a story about my buddy Chris and my father-in-law talking about a financial planning firm. And uh, suddenly they both started seeing ads for it. Well, it turns out one of them couldn't remember the name of it and looked on Google to remember the exact name of the firm. Uh, they happened to be next to each other when this happened. They happened to be on the same Wi-Fi hotspot. And so it was reasonable con to conclude there was some interest in the financial services firm. They've just gotten so good that you think that they're listening to you. And I'm not going to dissuade you that they're not because I'm still wondering about it. I mean, for example, until Apple released a, uh, a beta software update, no one knew that companies like TikTok were collecting the information uh, that you've copied on your phone and then transmitting it back to Beijing. And other apps do the same thing. You put something in your clipboard on your phone, you copy it, and suddenly you open another app and they can figure it out. So it wouldn't be surprising to me, for example, if, if my sisters and I are having a text message conversation and my middle sister think, uh, says that she's tired and is also on Facebook, that Facebook can somehow read the text message or get access to the text message. Now, Facebook would deny it, uh, and, and they all deny they're, they're recording you, but clearly something high level is going on. That hackers have not been able to find it is actually the most impressive thing to me, and that makes me think they're not actually detecting your microphone, but who knows? But clearly, we need better privacy in the country. I want to read for you this email. Uh, so Taylor emailed me this. Taylor's a listener. I want to read you this. Folks act like we have a choice and that, after all, the goodies are free. First off, you don't have a choice. To function competitively, you have to use a smartphone and use various apps. When you try to opt out of certain invasive permissions, you're denied usage of the app. Secondly, it's not free. It's not a fair transactional exchange. Your data is infinitely more valuable than the apps you use. Let's be honest. They don't need access to your photos so that you can listen to a, a, a radio station streaming. It's true. And yet they want it. They want all sorts of information. They want to be able to access as much information and you're freely giving them. Now, here, here's the side side angle here. It's not just you. It is your kids. You may not realize this, but there's actually a federal law that your kids aren't allowed to use social media until they're 13. And most every single person I know who has set up an account for their kids, including myself before 13, lies about their age. I monitored and aggressively taught my kids about social media, particularly my daughter wanted to use Instagram. I set her up an account before she was 13. We monitored it. We explained to her what was going on. We, we checked her direct messages. We made sure that, that she was up to speed on what was happening, but we wanted her to get into it and use it. And they're tracking her. And the thing I'm now learning that is really bothersome to me is it's not just the Fortune 500 companies that can access your data and buy your data and use your data to track you. It's the predators who can do it too. There, my friends, is a problem. And there, my friends, is something you've got to worry about with your family. And I never realized that until recently. Your cell phone data as well can be, be um, sold. Wired Magazine actually did a major story in the New York Times, did a huge story about the president's 
movements in Florida were able to be tracked because you can buy cell service data from cell towers so you can track people's movements uh, based on their cell phones. So if you've got a cell phone, your movements can be tracked because the data of where you move based on your signal to or your phone to, to cell tower signal is tracked. And then your Bluetooth is tracked when you get to the local department store, you wander around, they can build a complete profile of who you are, where you live, where you shop, how you wander a store, what you look for, what you're interested in. And at some point they cross a line. And I think the line has been crossed. And I think it's probably time for Apple to deploy its privacy measures on his phones. But I also think it's probably time for Congress to get involved. Um, I, I, I am firmly convinced, particularly, and here's my last point on this. I, I'm sure I bored you to death now on this. Here's my last point. You and I now live in an age where if you did something as a 14-year-old and you're now 30 years old, the left comes to try to cancel you for what you did as a 14-year-old. You should be protected from that. Cancel culture reaches back now to destroy you based on things you did a decade ago. There's no forgiveness. There's no way to move on. You can't hide from it. And there, there, there's no there's no forgiveness unless you abandon your values and embrace the left. And even then, it's still hard to be forgiven. Y'all, this is, this is a problem. It is a problem. And it's one where I'm not in favor of big government and I really don't like regulation, but something's got to be done here, uh, particularly for your kids, not for you, but for your kids, because kids have gotten so used to technology and so used to being oblivious to the tracking of themselves and their privacy online that it's going to come back to bite them later in life. It would not surprise me if a few years from now, we're starting to get extortion cases coming forward where they've tracked your kids online and realize your kid is going to search porn or some such on the internet and, and uh, nefarious parties are trying to blackmail your kid when they grow up. This stuff is going to happen. It's, it's not dystopian future. It's dystopian reality. And the government actually probably needs to figure out a way to step in and do something. But in the meantime, we should allow companies like Apple to step forward and do stuff like this. We, we, we've got to be proactive in protecting people's privacy. And it has become too valuable a commodity for companies to want to protect. The fact that Apple, just, just let, let me sum it up this way. The fact that Apple is delaying privacy features because companies are saying, wait a second, we've built entire businesses based on this data and you're going to bankrupt us if you do this, suggests to me that it's gotten too far out of hand. No one should be able to build a business on my information or your information. And that's what's happening. It's gone too far. It's time to curtail it. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Email from a listener. I believe they're listening. We were gathered at, at work one day and the office cut up, started joking about doing drugs. The boss's phone lit up without being touched and there was an ad for a rehab facility on the screen. <laughs> I've heard these stories from too many people. You know, someone else uh, private messaged me and said that um, that um, every time they, they when they had the, the when they had the Walgreens app on their phone, they would start getting uh, push alerts about Walgreens. Uh, you know, I I've got a 
Walgreens, you know, all these companies now, you got the card, the discount card or whatever. It drives me crazy. Why don't you just give us the discount instead of forcing us to use? You can track us so well now. Why do we need the stupid card? Uh, but in any event, it, you, you get near Walgreens and suddenly it lights up. Um, they track people. They track. All right. Uh, I actually spent way more time on that than I intended, but I'm glad I did because, you know, again, I, I realize this is. Uh, one of those stories that not a lot of people care about, but man, I got to tell you, um, everybody's got a story and it's becoming a problem and good for Apple, at least for taking this on. I wish they would actually do it. A professor, we're switching gears dramatically now. I bet, I bet the tech companies knew all along she was white. A professor of African and Latin American studies who portrayed herself as black has now revealed she's been lying. Jessica Krug, an associate professor at George Washington University, has written extensively about Africa, Latin America, the diaspora, and identity, all while claiming her own black and Latina heritage. But in an article published on Medium.com on Thursday, Krug revealed the truth. (gasps) She's white. She's Sean King. Um, To an escalating degree over my adult life, I have eschewed my lived experience as a white Jewish. What? She's white and Jewish in suburban Kansas City under various assumed identities within a blackness that I had no right to claim. First, North, North African blackness, then U.S. rooted blackness. Then Caribbean rooted Bronx blackness, she wrote. What the hell is this? <laughs> she she's she's a she's a racial mad lib. Krug. <laughs> oh my gosh. Krug acknowledged in her post that she has no right to claim these ideas. Wait, 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 wait. I'm sorry. I got I got to I got to go back to the list. To an escalating degree over my adult life, I have eschewed my my lived experience as a white Jewish child in suburban Kansas City under various assumed identities within a blackness that I had no right to claim. So first she claimed North African blackness, then U.S. rooted blackness, then Caribbean rooted Bronx blackness. This woman is insane. Krug acknowledged in her post she had no right to claim these identities saying that doing so is the very epitome of violence, of thievery, and appropriation of the myriad ways in which non-black people continue to use and abuse black identities and cultures. She apologized for what she called her continued appropriation of a black Caribbean identity, saying she was wrong, unethical, immoral, anti-black, and (gasps) colonial. I am not a culture vulture. I am a culture leech. Okay. Time out. So we have a professor 
who is a, a white Jewish child of suburban Kansas City, who in her own words, quote, assumed identities within a blackness I did not have a right to claim. First North African blackness, then U.S. rooted blackness, then Caribbean rooted Bronx blackness. What the hell is Caribbean rooted Bronx blackness? I have no idea, but she claimed it. She, so she, she taught school. She taught black and Latina studies. At George Washington University, she wrote extensively about Africa, Latin America, the diaspora, and identity, all while claiming to be Latino and black. Can I just ask a question? We live in the 21st century where if you believe you are a woman, you're a bigot if you don't recognize the person's claim to be a woman. Why is it wrong for this woman who clearly wants to be black, why can't she claim it and we have to accept it? If she could, if, if this woman could claim to be a dude and we're required to accept it or we're bigots, why not this? What's different? Ah, there isn't. There isn't. There really isn't. And it's just really hard for people to acknowledge that, isn't it? Um, no, ma'am, you, you can't be black if you weren't born black, nor can you be a man if you weren't born a man. It's fascinating to me that people can't see that, that dichotomy here, but wow, crazy. Good morning. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson show across the state of Georgia. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC-877-973-7425. Y'all, I'm not done getting myself in trouble with this story. If you're just tuning in, I, I'm, I'm, I continue to dwell and meditate and, and bash my head against the wall over the story. For those of you just tuning in, let's review, shall we? <laughs> it's one of those days. Here we, we'll get to the real news of the day, but I, I gotta, I gotta, I, I just, I, man, this, this story, y'all. Let, let's do this. A professor of African. <laughs> okay, if you were here, let you've heard that. I'm, I'm just not done with this. I can't let this story go. A professor of African and Latin American studies who portrayed herself as black has now been revealed she's been lying. Jessica Krug, an associate professor at George Washington University, has written extensively about Africa, Latin America, the diaspora, and identity, all while claiming her own black and Latina heritage. But in an article published on Medium on Thursday, Krug revealed the truth. She's white! To an escalating degree over my adult life, I have eschewed my lived experience as a white Jewish child in suburban Kansas City under various assumed identities within a blackness that I had no right to claim. First, North African blackness, then U.S.-rooted blackness, then Caribbean rooted Bronx blackness. I don't know what Caribbean rooted Bronx blackness is or if there's a vaccine for it, but that's what she claims. Krug acknowledged in her post that she had no right to claim these identities, saying that doing so is the very epitome of violence. Now, wait just a minute here. We're being told by the left in America today that burning down businesses is not violence, 
but this woman believes that pretending to be Caribbean-rooted Bronx blackness is violence, thievery, and appropriation of the myriad ways in which non-black people continue to use and abuse black identities and cultures. She apologized for what she's called her continued appropriation of a black Caribbean identity, saying she was wrong, unethical, immoral, anti-black, and colonial. I'm not a culture vulture, she wrote. I'm a culture leech. Now, here's here's the hilarious part of it. Anmol Gurea, a junior at George Washington studying international affairs, said she took an introductory history class with Krug in the spring of 2019. At the time, Krug was one of her favorite professors. Gurea said she seemed like an energetic woman of color being unapologetic about who she was, coming to class in heels, huge hoop, ear, hoop earrings, and even leopard print. So you mean the professor stereotyped Caribbean blackness? Gurea told CNN, Krug would often champion black and indigenous artists and lectured on topics such as indigenous populations in Chile and the role of rice in the African diaspora. From the moment she came into the classroom, I was in awe of her, Gurea said, and I'm just shocked that it was such a complete lie. Krug told the class she was from Bronx, an identity she was proud of, Gurea told CNN. She once even got into an argument with a student who tried to say rap was invented in Brooklyn. She would also use a lot of Spanish in her speech. <laughs> this is a big tell that it was actually a white progressive. <laughs> For example, rather than plantains, she would always say platanos. But the exact place she was from was changed, Gorea said. She once spoke about how plantains were important to her family in the Dominican Republic, but told another student she was from Puerto Rico, Gorea said. Still, she never would have guessed Krug was lying. It was the last thing on my mind that she was lying. I would think I had the details confused. Krug? <gasps> Krug would also say the N-word when it was in text the class was reading. Now, a white person can't get away with that. Crystal Nosal, a spokeswoman for George Washington University, wrote to CNN that the university is aware of Krug's post and looking into the situation but cannot comment further on personnel matters. Krug did not reply to CNN. Krug's admission brought to mind the 2015 case of Rachel Dolezal, another white woman who passed as a black woman while teaching Africana studies at Eastern Washington University and headed her local chapter of the NAACP. <laughs> people on Twitter immediately spoke out against Krug, predicting she would continue taking away opportunities for black people. <laughs> All right, wait a second. Here we go. Krug received her PhD in 2012 from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Of course, of course, according to her staff page on George Washington University's website. She's written extensively for Essence Magazine, most recently on August 27, for a piece titled On Puerto Rico Blackness and Being When Nations Aren't Enough. The piece has been deleted from Essence website. The introduction to her 2018 book, Fugitive Modernities, Politics and Identity Outside the State in Kisama, Angola and the Americas, circa 1594 to present, which traces the histories of communities in Angola, begins with references to those who came before her, her grandparents and her ancestors. It's now being held up as one way Krug lied about her identity. Wait a second here. We have a professor who claimed, y'all, I just, I am in love with the list. 
She assumed identities within a blackness. She said she had no right to claim North African blackness, U.S. rooted blackness, Caribbean rooted Bronx blackness. Very specific. And she was able to get a pass from the University of Wisconsin and from George Washington University and from her own students and from Essence Magazine. Why can't she be black? She clearly wants to be black. Why can't this lady be black? Does anyone understand why she can't be black? I mean, she she writes. She, she says the N-word in class. She argues about whether rap comes from the Bronx or Brooklyn. She, she says she's black. She's written books about her blackness and her ancestry, and, and she covers it. Her students love her. They find her very informed in, in the ethnic studies that she teaches. If she wanted to be a dude, we would have to accept it. If, if, if this woman... Jessica Krug, actually, if, if, what if Jessica Krug is actually Jesse Krug? It's a dude who now thinks he's a she. We would all be forced to accept it or we would be considered hateful bigots. Why? Why aren't we allowed to, what's the difference? You go from a boy to a girl or a girl to a boy and if you don't accept it, you're a hateful bigot. But you want to go from white to black or even black to white? what's what's the difference i mean that that's the problem with the progressive ideology on this is if we can choose our gender why can't we choose our race what makes race different from what are you not born that way or you are born that way but what huh yeah see the problem here what's more interesting to me though is how she got away with it for so long she got the pass and this frankly is one of the problems when you get into victimology studies that so many campuses have these days, whether it's the ethnic study, uh, African-American studies, Latina studies, women and gender studies, uh, queer theory studies, you name it. Uh, the victimology classes are the most easily duped because they're the dumb people on campus. Oh, that's going to get me in trouble. But you go to college to find a professional degree. What the heck is your professional gonna be, degree going to be in women and gender studies, except you're going to go on college campuses and teach someone, or you're going to be a human resource advisor who's aggrieved at the world? When, when colleges went down this road of ethnic studies, it just opened the door for, for a bunch of charlatans. And she's no different from the others. And... Here we have this woman who decided decided she was black. What about her parents, by the way? I, I assume that there is some, some family issue here in the background, and that's got to be an assumption. If she says she's actually a white Jewish kid from the suburbs of Kansas City, there is clearly something in her past with her family that she is running away from. I have no idea what it is, and I don't intend to be a, a, an armchair psychiatrist here. But, I mean, if, if there's not, what does she do when she goes home? There's, the woman has issues. Yes, you need to pray for her. She clearly has issues. But the larger issue is how she can dress up in high heels, huge hoop earrings, and leopard print and be presumed to be who she says she is based on how she dresses and how she acts and the accent she uses when it's all for show. And she got away with it forever. 
until she herself exposed herself. Now, maybe someone was about to expose her, but she herself, she chose to expose herself now. A culture leech, she calls herself. That she was wrong, unethical, immoral, anti-black, and colonial. She'd still be getting away with it had she not exposed herself. And she'd still be writing for magazines. And she'd still be held up as an authority on the subject. And she wasn't what she seemed to be. Because... She grabbed hold of stereotypes, and it's wrong when you grab hold of stereotypes, and yet they gave her a pass on it because she said the right things and did the right things and behaved the right way and had the right opinions on an academic campus. So she could get away with it by being one of them. But then we have to go back to the other awkward point here. If she was actually a he had, like Bruce Caitlyn Jenner, not severed parts from her body, his body, whose ever body it is, but decided he now was a she, Jesse was now Jessica, you'd be a hateful bigot for not accepting it. Because she, he, whatever, is entitled to their identity, their truth. It's all about their truth. And this woman's truth was that she was a, a North African U.S., Caribbean, Bronx, black person. And that was her truth. Why in postmodern times can't she have that truth? And it's stories like this that should give away the game on how nutty this whole postmodern nonsensical stuff is. The it There is truth. It's not your truth. Her truth was that she's black and she's actually white and Jewish. And she's finally rejected her truth in favor of the truth. Maybe she'll get a good book deal out of it. But we should always accept the truth, not someone else's truth. And there is really no logical difference in accepting her truth. If if she was actually a he but wanted to be a she and you're a hateful bigot for not believing it, there really is no logical difference then if she, a white Jewish woman, decides she wants to be black, you've got to accept her blackness. There's, there's no there's no difference between the two. You're born black, you're born male or female. And if you want to change male or female, we give you a pass in society and condemn others who don't accept it. But if you want to change your race, you're, you're, you're not allowed to. Why not? What's the difference? There is no difference except the fact that one has become sacrosanct and one is not on the left. And I suspect one day we're going to move in the direction where people get a pass. She'll in the future get a pass. Rachel Dozal will get a pass. Doesn't make it right. But this is the the illogic, I mean, the insanity uh, or the logic of an insane asylum. Insane people. And there's just not any logical difference between the two. Except the perception of a community of people. And if it's not their truth and it's her truth, why should what they think matters? She wanted to be black? By the logic of the left, by the logic of the insane asylum, by the logic of the progressive movement, by the logic of victimization studies in colleges these days, we should be forced to acknowledge her blackness or be considered bigots. But no, 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 no. It's not the way it works in this case. Why is that? I'm coming. I'm coming. (laughs) Sorry. I was trying not to sneeze. 
Welcome back. It's Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425. Well, something has happened, folks. For the first time in Georgia, Black Lives Matters activists have disrupted a political event uh, to the point they could not carry on the event while the protesters were there disrupting. This is audio from the Kelly Leffler Tom Cotton event in Cumming, Georgia. Now, they were able to mix and mingle and talk to people. That they, they didn't do a lot of formal speaking there. Um, uh, given that, honestly, this was... There are a lot of people... I, I, I Okay, confession. I wondered it myself. I, I, I wondered it myself. Was this all staged? W- was it staged... Because, okay, so let me give you the background here. So, uh, the Leffler and Cotton are on tour. Tom Cotton from Arkansas, Kelly Leffler from here in Georgia. They're on tour together through the state, campaigning together. Uh, uh, Cotton has come out and endorsed Kelly Leffler. And uh, they they wanted to be on the show today. Well, they they called in my evening show yesterday that this event happened. They wanted to go on and get on yesterday right after the event happened. Like, all right. It's something. Well, nope. It turns out it, it, it was a legitimate protest. There were there it was no staging. Uh, it, it turns out that it was the former. Um, it, it, hang on a second. A buddy of mine sent me the story. Yep, here it is. Um, it's a former active uh, Democratic candidate for lieutenant governor, uh, Tarina Arnold James. She and another protester uh, disrupted the event chanting Black Lives Matter, holding up Black Lives Matter paraphernalia and T-shirts, shouting down Leffler as she was trying to speak at the event. Uh, Multiple videos have come out from this thing of the Black Lives Matter activists. Now, this is a first in Georgia. They targeted Leffler, of course, because of her comments on the WNBA and her disagreement with the WNBA uh, taking the side of Black Lives Matters. Leffler has called the organization a Marxist organization. It is a Marxist organization, and clearly I need to review this with folks. The founders of Black Lives Matter have founded the organization and called it explicitly Marxist. Black Lives Matter, in fact, um, their website lists what they're about. They have an about section. They have a, it says what we believe. Let me read you this and listen to the Marxist language. Four years ago, what is now known as the Black Lives Matter Global Network began to organize. It started out as a chapter-based, member-led organization whose message was to build local power and to intervene when violence was inflicted on black communities by the state and vigilantes. In the years since, we've committed to struggling together and to imagining and creating a world free of anti-blackness where every black person has the social, economic, and political power to thrive. The founders of Black Lives Matter are avowed Marxists. They have described themselves that way. It is not lying to call them Marxist when they themselves have called themselves Marxist. And the language used by Black Lives Matter is avowedly Marxist language. In addition to wanting to defund the police, they want to call for for liberation, that uh, they want to call for the tearing down of the nuclear parent household. Uh, they want to get rid of uh, aspects of private enterprise. 
This is a Marxist organization. In fact, you know what? I, I should probably, it's been a while since I've done this. The president is getting attacked for daring to call Black Lives Matters a uh, Marxist organization and a Marxist movie. Kelly Leffler, that's why the protesters showed up yesterday at Leffler's event, is they're angry with her for denouncing Black Lives Matters as an anti-police, anti-law enforcement organization uh, that is based in Marxism. But she's not lying. It actually is. And they themselves have done this. This is such, this is like uh, calling yourself black when you're not and everybody's got to accept it or, or, or what have you. It's, it's crazy. They call themselves Marxist and you point that out and they call you racist for pointing out how they themselves call themselves. It's nonsense. This gets back to the Tim Keller stuff on on uh, critical theory that I talked about the other day, that if if everything is based in power and the, the rich white guys are the powerful and they must be silenced, what happens when the others get powerful? Aren't they then the oppressor? If the person with the most power is always the oppressor, don't they become the oppressor? Yes, but you're not allowed to point that out. It's racist if you do. Using the word racism as a weapon to silence people and trying to get people off the radio, it's just the whole thing is is nonsense. The whole thing is crazy. Uh, but that's where we are as a society. We are being hijacked by lunatics from an insane asylum of progressivism. And man, y'all, it's it, it's not going to end well if we don't put, the, put this nonsense out and, and stand up to it. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. I am so well far off the beaten path of where I intended to go in this show today. That's okay. Um, it, we, we go with the flow. Uh, if you're just tuning in, Kelly Leffler had her event yesterday in coming Georgia disrupted by Black Lives Matter's protesters. <laughs> That was audio from the event. She and Tom Cotton campaigning. Uh, David Ralston, the Speaker of the House, has endorsed Doug Collins. Uh, Leffler has Senator Tom Cotton's endorsement and uh, Brian Kemp's endorsement. She's campaigning around the state. She's doing a series of events in the state uh, with Cotton and other senators coming down to support her. Uh, She's been going up in the polls. But the reason the Black Lives Matters protesters are protesting Leffler is because she has had some very choice words about uh, the WNBA, of which she's a co-owner of a team or was a co-owner of a team, choosing to affiliate with the Black Lives Matters organization. And a lot of organizations out there in America right now are affiliating with Black Lives Matters, the organization. The Black Lives Matters organization is formed by was formed by Marxists. So I want to navigate you through this. It's been some time since I've done this. Saying Black Lives Matter is an accurate, truthful statement. Let me pause for a moment. Some of you are yelling at the radio right now. I can feel it in the force. You're yelling, but all lives matter. You should say all lives matter. During the Holocaust, it would have been appropriate to say Jewish lives matter. Not all lives matter because it was Jews who were systematically being exterminated by the Nazis. It was about them. It wasn't about you. It's not about you. It was about them. In the same way now, we have the Ahmed Arbery situation. We have the George Floyd situation. We have all these other situations of uh, mostly young black men who are being killed. 
we can argue over the lawfulness or what have you of Richard Brooks and others, but uh, this is about them. It's not about you, and it's their lives matter. Yes, your life matters, but shut up. It's not about you. It's about them. Black lives do matter. But saying the statement Black Lives Matter is different from the organization Black Lives Matter, the Black Lives Matter Global Network. That organization is a Marxist organization. Let me read to you what it says. Black Lives Matter began as a call to action in response to state-sanctioned violence and anti-black racism. Our intention from the very beginning was to connect black people from all over the world who have a shared desire for justice to act together in their communities. The impetus for this commitment was and still is the rampant and deliberate violence inflicted on us by the state. There's nothing wrong with that statement. Enraged by the death of Trayvon Martin and the subsequent acquittal of his killer, George Zimmerman, and inspired by the 31-day takeover of the Florida State Capitol by Power You and the Dream Defenders, we took to the streets. A year later, we set out together on the Black Lives Matter Freedom Ride to Ferguson in search of justice for Mike Brown and all those who have been torn apart by state-sanctioned violence and anti-black racism. Forever changed, we returned home and began building the infrastructure for the Black Lives Matter Global Network, which even in its infancy has become a political home for many. You can disagree on, on the Zimmerman stuff or Michael Brown and the Ferguson stuff, but there's nothing wrong with that statement. Ferguson helped to catalyze a movement to which we've all helped to give life. Organizers who call this network home have ousted anti-black politicians, won critical legislation to benefit black lives, and changed the terms of the debate on blackness around the world. Through movement and relationship building, we have also helped catalyze other movements and shifted culture with an eye toward the dangerous impacts of anti-blackness. Now, let's keep reading. Every day we recommit to healing ourselves and each other and to pay attention to this, co-creating alongside comrades, allies, and family, a culture where each person feels seen, heard, and supported. There's nothing wrong with that statement, but the use of the phrase comrades and allies should start to raise some flags. We work vigorously for freedom and justice for black people and by extension, all people. Again, Nothing wrong with that. We intentionally build and nurture a beloved community that is bonded together through a beautiful struggle that is restorative, not depleting. Nothing wrong with that, but notice the word we've got now, comrade, ally, the beautiful struggle. We are unapologetically black in our positioning. In affirming that Black Lives Matter, we need not qualify our position to love and desire freedom and justice for ourselves is a prerequisite for wanting the same for others. We see ourselves as part of a global black family and we are aware of the different ways we are impacted or privileged as black people who exist in different parts of the world. And this is where now we begin to see problems, particularly conflicting with the Christian worldview. We are guided by the fact that all black lives matter regardless of actual or perceived sexual identity, gender identity, gender expression, economic status, ability, disability, religious belief or disbeliefs, immigration status or location. We make space for transgender brothers and sisters to participate and lead. We are self-reflective, reflexive, and do the work required to dismantle cis 
gender privilege and uplift black trans folk, especially black trans women who continue to disproportionately be impacted by trans antagonistic violence. We build a space that affirms black women and is free from sexism, misogyny, environments in which men are centered. We practice empathy. We engage comrades, comrades, there's that word again, with the intent to learn about and connect with their contexts. We dismantle the patriarchal practice that requires mothers to work double shifts so they can mother in private even as they participate in public justice work. And then there's this one. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. And we foster a queer-affirming network. When we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking, or rather, the belief that all the world are heterosexual. You see where this heads. This heads into progressive Marxist word salad. Do you know who were big advocates of getting rid of the two-parent nuclear household? The communists. Even in China today, they break up families. They limit the child size. They still they deny it. They say they've reversed the policy, but there's still reports of them forcibly aborting uh, kids or taking kids away from families if the families have gotten big. This is... Marxism at work here. Now, what is Marxism? Marxism is, uh, you, you can go back to Karl Marx and his view of all the world is a power struggle. It's a power struggle between races. It's a power struggle between the poor and the wealthy. It's a power struggle between the West and the East. Everything's about power. Everything is seen in terms of power. It's actually a stupid view of the world. You see, so much of our culture now revolves around the ideas of power imbalance and power struggle, uh, but it's actually a rather stupid idea because it lumps people by their classes, not by their individuality. So who is more powerful, Donald Trump or Nancy Pelosi? Well, would you say Donald Trump because he's the president or Donald Trump because he's a man, a white man? What about Nancy Pelosi, who can shut down Congress and block anything from passing? Is she not more powerful than the president in that regard? Well, but she's a woman. But they're both white. Where do all of these things balance out? The the, the Marxists, the, the critical theory people would attempt to tell us that, but it's all word salad gobbledygook just like this. But more importantly, uh, this is an organization that's committed to uh, disrupting the nuclear family structure requirement as they view it as Western prescribed. That is a very Marxist idea. It's not an idea of colonialism or it's not an idea of, of anti-colonialism. Uh, you, you find the two-parent nuclear structure in African nations, in South American nations, in European nations, in Asian nations, in the United States. Now, to the extent that you're involved in your community and your community is also helping your kids, it all depends on which communities in which you live. In rural areas and ex-urban areas, regardless of where you are in the world, you tend to find closer-knit communities where people go in together and help raise each other's kids and are mindful for each other's kids. But that's called community. Not commune, but community. 
but kids still have their families. Now, what this is, is to some degree a recognition of failure of uh, an admission of failure of the two parent nuclear household in the black community. It's just it's like the society went to war against two parent families in the black community. And it's appalling, and we should be working to rebuild two-parent heterosexual nuclear households in the black community instead of further undermining uh, the two-parent nuclear household. But if you can undermine the nuclear – what happens if you undermine the nuclear household? Let, let, let's go to the way it used to work, not the way it currently works. Well, we'll get there. But the way it used to work is you had one parent, typically the mom, stayed home, ran the house and took care of the kids while the dad went out and – earn money to take care of the family. Over time, to keep up with the Joneses, mom went to work as well. And increasingly, in a lot of places, kids took care of themselves, latchkey kids, the big phenomenon in the late 80s, early 90s, latchkey kids. Mom and dad were at work. Mom was pursuing her career. Dad was pursuing his career. But at the end of the day, you had both parents in the house, both parents engaged. Kids need a mom and a dad. Now, what happens when you can create government programs on which you can create dependency uh, on which you do not need two parents? You just need one. Well, typically, it's the dad who's expendable, not the mom. In current culture, there are biases against men, and that translates into biases against dads. And what happens? Well, you create a, a culture of dependency on government. But there's a fatal flaw in the programming. Because Uncle Sam is not readily available to be dad to kids. And kids, believe it or not, intuitively by nature, they need a mother and a father. And they go in search of a father. Where do they find that father? In some communities, they find that fathership in gangs. In some communities, they find that fathership in a bedroom with someone older, maybe someone younger, in abusive relationships. I've mentioned this before. It's worth saying again, dads do matter. And dads, if you have bad relationships with your kids, work on improving them because dads matter tremendously in the life of a kid. Moms matter too. But the idea that we're going to break up shatter, disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. It's not Western prescribed. Do you know why the two-parent nuclear household exists? G.K. Chesterton talks about the democracy of the dead, that those who came before you, your ancestors, tried by trial and error to get things done. Let me see if I can pull up this quote real quick. Democracy of the dead. Uh, It it is a very famous G.K. Chesterton quote. He writes in an orthodoxy. Tradition means giving a vote to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is the democracy of the dead. Tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking about. All Democrats object to men being disqualified by the accident of birth. Tradition objects to their being disqualified by the accident of death. Democracy tells us not to neglect a good man's opinion, even if he is our groom. Tradition asks us not to neglect a good man's opinion, even if he's our father. What is is Chesterton saying here? We do things because other people in past times tried them and figured out what worked. 
There was a time we had communal living arrangements, and guess what? It didn't work out so well, and families over time morphed to the two-parent nuclear structure. You see it reflected even in Scripture. God creates Adam and Eve and tells them to be fruitful and multiply, the first father and the first mother. You don't have a community there. You've got a man and a woman. And the idea that it's Western prescribed is nonsense. Look at cultures that are not of the West. Look at the East. You still have family structures. That doesn't mean you don't have extended families. You do have extended families. And to some extent, that's something the West should get back to, where families live together. But there is always a head of household. There's respect for the ancestors. There's respect for later generations. But to say that it's Western prescribed is not only nonsensical, it is a full embrace of Marxism, which does not like the two-parent nuclear household, because as long as there's a mother and a father in the household raising children, the children are less dependent on the state. And Marxism is all about you becoming more dependent on the state. Black lives matter. They matter greatly. The organization Black Lives Matter is a Marxist organization that wishes to disrupt the family. It wishes to defund the police. And it wishes to distinguish itself in form of blackness as opposed to the content of someone's character defining them. It is the color of their skin that's supposed to define them in contradiction to what Martin Luther King Jr. wanted. And increasingly, you find voices coming from this organization and others on the left saying that Martin Luther King Jr., And people like John Lewis were actually not good because they didn't call for violence. And we need a violent struggle. The struggle must be violent to actually be a real struggle. That's where we're headed with a lot of the stuff. Kelly Leffler called it out. Tom Cotton called it out. And the Black Lives Matters protesters showed up to disrupt their event like they want to disrupt the two-parent nuclear household because it's what they do now. They disrupt. They smash windows. They burn buildings. They loot, and then they say, well, it's not violence because there's insurance to take care of it. This is a Marxist ideology on the march in this country. And you should know what you're dealing with. Black lives matter. It's a statement that is true. It is different from a Marxist organization that is okay with the violence happening in the country and the disruption of the two-parent nuclear household, and we should not confuse the two. And Kelly Leffler pointed that out, and now they're coming for her at her events. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. You know you can actually call into the program. The number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. This hour of the program brought to you by First Liberty Building and Loan. They are not a bank. They're a building and loan. They exist in Noonan, Georgia. Uh, they're local to us here in Georgia, but, 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 they can help you anywhere nationwide. They don't do business with individuals, though, but with businesses. So if you're tied to a business... If you work with a business and you want your business to become a bigger business and you need access to credit, access to capital, First Liberty is who you need to go to. Uh, I've known the Frost family for years. They've been doing this since the early 90s. 93, I think, uh, is when they got started, and they help businesses become bigger businesses. Uh, they do. They can do bridge financing. They can do all sorts of stuff to help you. Uh, and if you need that help for your business, go to firstlibertyga.com. Firstlibertyga.com is their website. I can't thank them enough for sponsoring the program. We couldn't have gotten off the ground without them. If you've got a business and you're thinking you, you want to help me in some way, get, keep this show going, If it, well, go to First Liberty if, if you need access to capital and credit because you help going to them, telling them I sent you is a way to help this business, this radio show, continue going. FirstLibertyGA.com. Good people too. 
All right, we've got to get to the story of uh, from the Atlantic. Um, before we do that, though, can, can I just can, can I have a, a moment on just the the nonsense of our current finances in this country? Listen to this about the Congressional Budget Office. The Congressional Budget Office reported that the deficit is estimated to hit a record $3.3 trillion due to increased stimulus spending during the coronavirus pandemic. The nonpartisan CBO also projects that the Social Security and Medicare trust funds will be exhausted by 2030 without congressional action. The report also estimated that the Highway Trust Fund will be exhausted by the end of next year. I have no idea what the music is in the background. No idea, but I wanted you to hear that from someone other than me. We have a serious fiscal problem in this country, uh, and I realize that the the solution perhaps maybe is to just let the economy grow, and if the economy grows, we'll bounce back from it, but I'm starting to get concerned about the fiscal health of our country. I mean, I've been concerned for a while. The problem is that Republicans... Or say, well, we got the pandemic. We got to deal with the pandemic. But yeah, we got to do something, folks. The entitlement programs, uh, everything else, the interest on the debt, all of that is becoming unmanageable for this country. We are on the verge of going bankrupt as a country. And now we got to deal with the Social Security Medicare problem. Somebody's going to have to make some tough decisions very soon in this country and, and make some cuts, some painful cuts probably, to keep this country afloat. Hello there. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the third hour of the program. Uh, we'll, we'll get back on the rails here and, and actually cover some of the stuff I intended to talk about. <laughs> before I do, before I do, first, you can call in 877-973-7425. Uh, I, I, we're, we're willing to take your phone calls, particularly because it's Friday, even though we hate people. Uh, but I want to give you some of the news just so you are aware As you head into the weekend, Georgia continues to progress in the appropriate direction. Uh, There is, let's see, uh, we've got 2,089 cases in the seven-day moving average in Georgia for date of report. Uh, To get a comparable, you've got to go back to uh, July 1st now, 2081, but date of onset is is the more important one. Remember, when you get a report here in Georgia on COVID-19, uh, they 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 release all of the reports on a day. So you may have 5,000 reports released on a day. And then the media reports that 5,000 new cases today. But actually, some of those are backlogged from several weeks. And they actually go and they assign them to where they were. So where, where are they? Well, to get a sense of that, with the 14-day window and the 70 moving average, on August 21st, that's where it cuts off. You got 1,829 cases. To get anything comparable, you've got to go to June 22nd, where it was 1,874 in the 70 moving average. But, 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 but. The actual number of cases on June 22nd was 3,057. The actual number of cases on August 20th is 1,845. We continue to trend in the right direction in Georgia. And the metro Atlanta area is no longer a hotspot. I'll tell you where there are some hotspots. Chattooga County in northwest Georgia is now a hotspot. Why? Uh, 202 cases in the last two weeks 
that turns out to be 816 cases per 100,000 people over the last two weeks. That's a problem. Uh, Lumpkin County is a hot spot, uh, 258 cases over the last two weeks. Union County, 125 cases, uh, kind of borderline in the hot spot territory. Clark County, with UGA coming back in, Clark County has had 938 cases in the last two weeks. Baldwin County continues to be a hot spot with 506 cases in the last two weeks. Bibb County, my goodness, Bibb County, that's Macon, 1,191 cases in the last two weeks with schools reopening. Taylor County is 50 cases in the last two weeks, but given the population in, in Taylor County, uh, that actually is pretty significant. That's 628 cases per 100,000 people. Chattahoochee County, south of Muskogee County, south of Columbus, uh, is a hot spot, as is Stewart County, just underneath Chattahoochee County. Miller County, down in southwest Georgia, is a hot spot. Bullock County, near the coast, near Effingham County, south of Screven County. That's a hot spot. And this whole cluster out in, in um, southeast Georgia, you've got Jefferson County, Johnson County, Truitland County, Emanuel County, Jenkins County, Bullock County, Candler County, and Toombs County out there. They're considered a hot spot, and that has a lot to do with migrant workers and farms and also uh, Georgia Southern. Now, Georgia Southern reopening is actually a bit of a problem out there causing uh, some of the hot spot that you would see. And then a Clinch County down in far south Georgia is also a bit of it. There, there is, There's a line down in southeast Georgia where cases are rising, and it has to do with either schools or migrant workers. But here's what you really need to understand and so that you can calm down about it, is that the major metropolitan areas of the state are actually trending down, and the state overall is trending down pretty significantly. And even though schools are opening and cases are spreading in kids, they're not jumping to adults like some people feared. And overwhelmingly, if you're under the age of 50, you're okay. Even with underlying conditions, you tend to be okay. It's over 50, particularly over 65, that continues to be a problem. Uh, that is your look at Georgia. You know, you know, it, it, it's kind of weird. So two months ago, three months ago, I was doing this every day. Every hour of every day, we were talking about it. And, you know, when the when it first started spreading, we were going through the list of counties, and I was listing the counties. We got one here. We got three here. We got 20 here. And now, one, people are tired of it. People really genuinely are tired. COVID fatigue is a thing. But also, we're headed in the right direction. And I, I, I try to bring this up now once a show to remind you that things are headed in the right direction because the only time you're going to hear local media cover this is if there is a, a if there's bad news there's another reason to bring this on though and and talk about this let me read you this from Greg Bluestein in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution wary of another post-holiday spike in coronavirus cases governor kemp embarked on a statewide fly around tour friday urging Georgians to take safety precautions to stem the spread of the disease over the Labor Day weekend. The governor warned that recent gains in the fight against the disease, including a sharp drop in new coronavirus cases and the hospitalization rate, will be reversed if people forget we're battling an invisible enemy, and unfortunately, some let their guard down. This progress can be erased very quickly if we grow complacent and ignore the guidance and public safety measures that we have in place. Our state's health and well-being rest on what Georgians choose to do over this Labor Day weekend. There, 
continues to be uh, a an active movement of people wanting to blame the governor, not individuals, for the spread of the virus. But as the governor has said on this program and elsewhere, the government is not going to stop the virus. You are going to stop the virus. You're, you're going to be the ones to do it. You're going to be the ones to engage. You're going to be the ones to wear a mask or not wear a mask. You're going to be the people who stop the virus. All of us together. When you're in the grocery store, when you're in public, when you're hanging out on your party boat, when you're on the beach, wherever you are for Labor Day, when you're in your backyard grilling, you're going to be responsible for whether the virus spreads or doesn't spread. And you can have impact on other people. Um, you know, I, I've got a, a relative who their kids go to private school and the senior class had a big party a couple of weekends ago, two weekends ago now. The senior class got together and had a big party. They weren't supposed to. They were told not to, but they did anyway. And 20 of the seniors in the class now have the virus. And several of them have spread it to their families who are spreading it into their community. And your behavior will impact not just you, but other people. And, you know, this man, see, I'm putting off getting to the Atlantic story. Because I need to get there and I just, it's a stupid story and it makes me mad, but I'll get to it. There's a level of selfishness in our society. We all know it. We're all selfish people because we're all sinners. But there's a frustrating level of selfishness right now for the people who don't want to wear masks, who are mask conspiracy theorists, that you know the mask actually makes it worse and on and on we go. And, and they don't want to do their part to help stop the virus from spreading. And the more you don't want to help, the worse government itself is going to get involved. This isn't a matter of indoctrination. It's not a matter of compliance. It's not a matter of being controlled by the government. It is the matter of a virus that is spreading that can kill your grandparents or your parents, depending on their age, and can cause you long-lasting harm. We now know that people in their 30s and 40s who get the virus have long-lasting problems even when they're recovered in many cases. We're still learning about the virus. And all you've got to do is wear a mask, socially distance, and wash your hands. And that's it. If everybody did it, the virus would calm down. But people are tired of it. You're tired of being distant. You're tired of the freaking mask. You know, I got to tell you, I, the other day, uh, had to put on the mask. I was going, where was I going? It was yesterday. I know I, I was in, in Buckhead in Atlanta and was going between some shops at the Buckhead Atlanta area. Um, Philip, who works with me, I guess he's listening now, so he'll find out. I, I, I went to the Davidoff cigar store and got us both a cigar. Uh, and um, the, you had to wear a mask. And they wanted you to wear a mask in the area. And it's like 95 degrees and you're walking among these stores and you got to have your mask on. And I'm dripping with sweat underneath the mask. And it's gross. And I didn't want to do it. And I'd take it off when I was outside for a minute and wipe. And there was a security guard asking me, please, sir, would you put your mask on? You're walking. And it seemed kind of ridiculous. I'm outside. There's no one around. And it seemed kind of ridiculous. But it's their property. Do what I'm told. People are getting tired of this. I'm getting tired of this. I've been a mask advocate and I'm tired of it. But we're not the only people tired of it. In Greece, the virus is beginning to surge again. You know, I, can I just say, so there's something in the back of my head, and I'm going to say it out loud, and maybe I shouldn't. Those are always the ones you should never say out loud, Erickson. 
Would it not be somewhat ironic if because Americans lacked the discipline to keep the virus at bay, that when we have the second wave of this come come wintertime, that other countries are hit far worse than us because all of us already got it. And all these other countries sheltered to play. We actually wound up with herd immunity, even if we didn't. Didn't You know, there actually is some compelling data out there now that um, the people expect that herd immunity is 70, 80 percent of the population needs to get it. And in this country, for some reason, the virus peaks out at about 20 percent of a population. We saw this on boats as well. You know, on some of the cruise ships, there would be up to 20 percent of the cruise ship could get the virus, but never more than that. And nobody really understands why or what's going on. There's still so much about it we don't understand. But I will tell you this in all seriousness. I'm tired of talking about it. It's like I'm tired. Of, I've, I've tried to avoid the big political stories of the day because I'm just tired of it. We've been talking about this stuff for weeks. I'm ready for the election. I'm ready for it to be over. I'm ready for a new news cycle. I'm ready for something beyond the virus. I know you guys are as well. But you can't let your guard down on this stuff. It's not going to be your life that depends on it, but someone else. We got So I'm in Macon. There's a local restaurant shop here in town. And the owner of the restaurant was very big into uh, this is no big deal. You don't need to worry about masks. Uh, It's just ridiculous. And then he got the virus and was in the hospital and now realizes that he was wrong and that it is bad. And I've got a lot of friends of mine who I think unless they get the virus are never going to accept how bad it is, that it is way worse than the flu. But also, I was talking to a buddy of mine last night, and he's probably listening now to this podcast uh, as a podcast. He, he, he listens to the show after it's over, and he made a great point. Would you know that we were in a global pandemic unless the media told you? And I don't know that we would. Because other than, than the, the shutdown in some cases and people now wearing masks, it, because of, of the global pandemic, I, I don't know that we would. But at the same time, I, I also do think that it's because we took the precautions we needed to take. Most of us took it seriously enough that we prevented it from getting out of hand. But I got to tell you, friends of mine who work in hospitals, including my neighbor, would tell you, yeah, you go to a hospital, you realize we're in a global pandemic because of the number of beds they do not have, the number of ICU beds they do not have, the number of people who die because they can't get treatment. Uh, if you work in a, in, a, in a funeral home, you would realize we're in a global pandemic, the, the increase in the number of people, the increase in the number of funerals you're conducting, uh, that you would see it there. It's kind of like a global world war. Would you know you're in a global world war if you're if you're not on the battlefield? Would, would you know we're in a big war? I, there, there are sometimes I don't know that you would know. There are oftentimes you don't realize you're in a pandemic. People are getting tired of it, y'all. People are tired of being home. In Europe, people are starting to have parties and go out and the virus is spreading again. Their, Greece has seen a second wave. They've had 10,000 new cases pretty dramatic increase in Greece because people are tired. Young people in particular are tired. I don't blame people for being tired. All you got to do is wear a mask, keep your distance and wash your hands and you can go about your life. And people are tired of that. I'm tired of that. But it's not my life. If I get the virus, I'm probably actually going to be fine. If you get the virus, you're probably actually going to be fine. But my wife, my in-laws, your grandparents, probably not. And it's on you to do the steps you can to surrender your selfishness to the greater good of your family to actually do what you need to do to keep people safe. And it sucks.
But we're Americans. We can be responsible. We can protect other people. We commit to a culture of life, and that means keeping other people safe. This hour of the show is brought to you by True Precision. They made my concealed carry gun. Let's see. Can I find this? This is so unprofessional. Stand by. I've got my guns right here. Yes. I have my concealed carry gun right here, and it's fantastic. I love it. I'm showing it for the camera if I can get it open. Why? Because it's gorgeous, and it's from True Precision. Check this out. If you're on camera, look at that slide, that barrel. This is a gorgeous gun. It's from True Precision. They put it together. They changed the slide. It's a Glock 43X, but they did the slide. They did the barrel. It's a camo pattern. Y'all, it's awesome. I love this gun. And I take it to the gun range, and people are like, where'd you get that? And I tell them True Precision. And I got it before they were an advertiser. Don't say I'm saying nice things about them because they're an advertiser. No, I'm saying nice things about them because I'm a customer. And I'm about to go in and, and upgrade the trigger on the gun, too. They actually texted me yesterday. They said they got new ones in stock. You guys want an awesome-looking gun to protect your home, to go to the gun range, whatever, you need to go to true-precision.com. True-precision.com. It's awesome. You can order the slides and the barrels online. And if you check out and you use Eric, E-R-I-C-K, as your checkout code, you're going to get 10% off the slide, the barrel, you name it. Go to true-precision.com. Y'all, it is actually a great company, good people, well-designed, fantastically manufactured. True-precision.com is the website. Use Eric at checkout. You get 10% off. What more could you ask for? You know what? Right now as well, you can't even go buy a gun because everybody's bought them. There aren't any more. So you can upgrade your existing gun with True Precision. I, I wonder if maybe David Ralston should stop endorsing candidates. Uh, So House Speaker David Ralston has formally endorsed Doug Collins. Further, this is, I'm reading from the AJC, further deepening a rift with Brian Kemp that could shape the rest of the governor's four-year term in office. Previous endorsements of Collins, a four-year congressman, sparked little reaction from Kelly Loeffler's campaign. This one triggered a damning condemnation that surprised even some of the senator's supporters. Yes! Leffler spokesman Stephen Ollis, they went there. They went there. Hallelujah. I told you people this was coming. Stephen Lawson, who works for Kelly Leffler, said Ralston is, quote, a career politician and criminal defense lawyer who abused his power. Both are political insiders who care more about their taxpayer-funded paycheck and politics than public safety and service. Yikes. Yikes. Um, later Thursday, Leffler got something of a gift when she was stumping and coming with U.S. Senator Tom Cotton, Triana Arnold James, a Democrat who lost a long shot campaign for lieutenant governor two years ago and is reviled by many in her party, showed up with another protester to interrupt Leffler's speech with chance of Black Lives Matter. Leffler, of course, has made her opposition to the movement for social justice a cornerstone of her campaign. Some of her allies believe it's the key reason her polling has been rising. The gift that keeps on giving, one supporter says. So here's the thing. Um, (laughs) I appreciate that the Leffler campaign is going after David Ralston because somebody needs to. And I hate for... Listen, I know that Collins... And Ralston are friends. 
And I feel bad for Doug that, that, I mean, he's got the, he's got a, a Ralston endorsement. I mean, getting a Ralston endorsement in this day and age is like, I mean, getting an endorsement from Nick Saban, um, you, you just don't want it. And the difference between Saban and Ralston is that Saban's a winner and Ralston is scandal plagued. And when the Leffler campaign is attacking Doug Collins for his criminal defense work, which, by the way, I've defended Collins for doing as an indigent criminal defense attorney, um, it, when they're attacking him for that, it doesn't help that he's gotten endorsed by a guy who notoriously used his office to protect criminals from ever having to face justice. In particular, you will recall David Ralston uh, represented a number of people accused of terrible crimes. And as Speaker of the House continuously delayed their trials, one person even admitting that's the whole reason he paid David Ralston $20,000 was so Ralston would ensure he never had to go to trial. One of the people Ralston defended was a pastor who molested a girl. And that was years ago. She was 13 or 14. She's now uh, an adult. She's dealt with the psychological issues of it. Her family, um, when when they said what happened, their church turned their backs on them, thought the, they were falsely accusing the pastor. He finally pled guilty, but it's been so long, he just pled guilty to inappropriately touching the girl. No jail time at all for the pastor doing what he did to that girl. And it was because David Ralston dragged it out for so long. This is going to be a campaign issue. It's good that Leffler is raising this issue, frankly. Here at the end, I am going to delve into the Atlantic story. I don't want to. I think it's a, a, a crummy story. But we need to we need to deal with it. Um, the Atlantic has a story. Uh, about the president essentially saying all sorts of bad and terrible things behind closed doors about dead soldiers, uh, including John McCain and the like. And, of course, every single source in the story is anonymous. Uh, according to The Atlantic, um, the president said Americans who died in war are losers and suckers. This is from Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor who caved to the left-wing mob and got rid of um, Kevin Williamson, the conservative writer. Let, let me read you part of this. When President Trump canceled a visit to the uh, Ace Marne American Cemetery near Paris in 2018, he blamed rain for the last-minute decision, saying that the helicopter couldn't fly and that the Secret Service wouldn't drive him there. Neither claim was true. Trump rejected the idea of the visit because he feared his hair would become disheveled in the rain and because he did not believe it important to honor American war dead, according to four people with firsthand knowledge of the discussion that day. In a conversation with senior staff members on the morning of the scheduled visit, Trump said, why should I go to that cemetery? It's filled with losers. In a separate conversation on the same trip, Trump referred to the more than 1,800 Marines who lost their lives at Below Wood as suckers for getting killed. Below Wood is a consequential battle in American history, and the ground on which it was fought is venerated by the American Marine Corps. Does that sound too good to be true? Because I think it probably sounds too good to be true. And it seems to me that we we have a situation more and more where 
the media is relying on anonymous sources to tell everyone what they want to hear. And I'm, I'm trying to find this now. Uh, I have John Bolton's book in front of me. John Bolton is not exactly a fan of the president. He wrote a tell-all book about the president of the United States. And there's a problem. Uh, the John Bolton writes about this incident in his book. And let's see, I'm, let's see, Macron. I, I'm, I, I've got it pulled up on Twitter, but I'm trying to find the actual page of the book so I can tell you uh, what he wrote. And what he wrote was not exactly, um, it, not exactly compatible with what we're being told by the reporters at the Atlantic. Yep. Okay. Here we go. Here we go. Uh, on Saturday, this is John Bolton writing. On Saturday, I went to the U.S. ambassador's residence where Trump was staying to brief him before his bilateral with Macron. The weather was bad, and Kelly and I spoke about whether to travel as planned to the Chateau Theory below wood monuments and nearby American cemeteries where many U.S. World War I dead were buried. Marine One's crew was saying that bad visibility could make it imprudent to chopper to the cemetery. The ceiling was too low for Marines to fly in combat, but flying POTUS was obviously something very different. If a motorcade were necessary, it could take between 90 and 120 minutes each way along roads that were not exactly freeways, posing an unacceptable risk that we could not get the president out of France quickly enough in case of an emergency. It was a straightforward decision to cancel the visit, but very hard for a Marine like Kelly to recommend, having originally been the one to suggest Below Wood, an iconic battle in Marine Corps history. Trump agreed, and it was decided that others would drive to the cemetery instead. As the meeting broke up and we prepared to leave for the Elysee Palace to see Macron, Trump pulled Kelly and me aside and said, find another spot for Mira. Now, this is what The Atlantic says again. When Trump canceled the visit, he blamed rain, saying the helicopter couldn't fly, and the Secret Service wouldn't drive him there, drive him there, and neither service was true. Neither, neither was true. Neither story was true. Trump again pulled Kelly and me. This is John Bolton writing. Is find another spot for Mira. Melania's people are on the warpath. Kelly and I assumed we were to find an equivalent position elsewhere in government in a calmer setting in Washington. This is someone working for the president Melania Trump didn't like. The press turned canceling the cemetery visit into a story that Trump was afraid of the rain and took glee in pointing out that other world leaders traveled around during the day. Of course, none of them were the president of the United States, but the press didn't understand that rules for U.S. presidents are different from the rules for 190 other leaders who don't command the world's greatest military forces. Trump blamed Kelly unfairly, marking a possibly decisive moment in ending his White House tenure. Trump was displeased throughout the trip because of the disappointing election results and nothing made things better. The rest of the Paris trip was similar. 
Macron opened their bilateral meetings by talking about a European army, as he had been doing publicly earlier, which a large number of other Americans were fully prepared to let the ungrateful Europeans have without us. Macron all but insulted Trump in his November 11th speech at the Arc de Triomphe, saying patriotism is the exact opposite of nationalism. Nationalism is a betrayal of patriotism by saying our interests first. Who cares about the others? Trump said he didn't hear Macron's rebuff because his earpiece cut off at the critical moment. John Bolton writes a tell-all book attacking the president of the United States, trying to undermine him. I, I interviewed John Bolton, not a fan of the president, actively does not think that the president of the United States should be president of the United States. You would think that that John Bolton in his book would collaborate what uh, unknown anonymous sources tell Jeffrey Goldberg. Again, Jeffrey Goldberg says that Trump rejected the visit because he feared his hair would become disheveled in the rain and because he did not believe it important to honor American war dead, according to four people with firsthand knowledge of the discussions. And yet th that's the opening two paragraphs of Jeffrey Goldberg's story. And we have the same story recounted by John Bolton in a tell-all book critical of the president that says that's not true at all. In fact, he writes in his book, the press turned canceling the cemetery into a story about how Trump was afraid of the rain and took glee in pointing out that other world leaders traveled during the day. Oblivious to the fact that the president of the United States doesn't get to travel like everyone else. So who's telling the truth? Who's telling the truth? I don't think it matters. I don't think the media should be running uh, tell-all stories with multiple anonymous sources when none of them want to come forward. And by the way, Jeffrey Goldberg asked about the anonymous sources is basically they don't want to put up with the hate that would come if, if they were exposed. But you've got direct contradiction by John Bolton. If you hate the president of the United States, you're going to embrace the story. If you love the president of the United States, you're going to reject the story. I don't really freaking care. The president has said nasty things about people like John McCain. Remember, the president said that John McCain wasn't a war hero because he got captured. The statements that Jeffrey Goldberg attributes to the president sound like the statements the president would make. And you can deny it if you're a Trump supporter, but you can't really honestly deny it. And at the same time, it directly contradicts John Bolton's book who's willing to go on the record with the actual facts of the situation and what John Bolton says in his previously published book about the exact same incident not only directly contradicts Jeffrey Goldberg, but actually ridicules the press for embracing the narrative that Jeffrey Goldberg is telling. I would submit to you that the previously written book that is a hit job on the president but actually defends the president of this issue is probably more honest than Jeffrey Goldberg, a man who hates the president, who drove a conservative away from the Atlantic because of left-wing outrage and has spent years catering to the vices and predilections and, and prejudices of the left through the pages of the Atlantic. Orange man bad is the story of the day for the press. And whether you like the president or not, I have a really hard time believing four anonymous sources who Goldberg tells CNN didn't want to come forward because of the hate they'd get on social media. Who cares? Who cares? 
what what is telling to me is that the media's learned nothing. They 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 complain about anonymous sources all the time, and they're willing to use anonymous sources to go after the president. It doesn't matter whether the story is true or not. If the story is true, someone should have been willing to go on the record. But not only were they not willing to go on the record, they're writing a story, the opening of which is directly con- contradicted by a tell-all book that is critical of the president and yet defends him on this issue. I would submit to you that one of the greatest services the president of the United States has done in his four years in office is break the back of the American media and expose them for being partisan hacks. We've known all along that these people are hostile to conservatives, and we've known all, we've known all along they're willing to, willing to peddle trash that makes people they don't like look bad and do whatever they can and say whatever they can and use whatever sources they can to tell us what they want us to believe because they're more interested in narrative than they are the truth. There's no difference between this and the National Enquirer. This is anonymously sourced trash about the president telling Atlantic subscribers what they want to hear. It's like the New York Times not being willing to run an op-ed by a sitting United States senator named Tom Cotton calling for the military to to suppress rioting in the country that 55% of Americans support because it would upset their audience. This scratches the ears. It tickles the ears of the Atlantic's audience. It gets buzz. It gets traffic. It gets notoriety. It gets Jeffrey Goldberg on television to trash the president. It makes him feel good with his friends. He can go out and people can give him attaboys and pat him on the back. And members of the press are going to flat out ignore the fact that it directly contradicts John Bolton, who the media was praising when he wrote his tell-all book. Hallelujah, we got a guy coming on the record telling the truth. And it's such a big deal that it's on the record. Remember that when Bolton comes out, Bolton comes out, he names names. They always want you to name names. And Bolton comes out and he names names. And the media loves it, loves it. We don't have to rely on anonymous sources. I don't care whether you like the president or not. I don't care whether you believe the story or not. What I do care is that the media is willing to abandon its own standards and claims of objectivity when they can attack someone the media doesn't like. Look at what they're doing to Kyle Rittenhouse now in Kenosha, Wisconsin the 17-year-old who killed those three people, the, the media would, would tell you that the three, well, two of the three people were killed, the three people he shot, the two he killed, that they were angels. Pay no attention to their criminal records. They were angels. Rittenhouse is the bad guy. Pay no attention to the video showing him defending himself. Pay no attention to the people throwing the Molotov cocktail at him. Pay no attention to the people shooting guns in his direction. Pay no attention to them trying to beat him over the head with a a skateboard. Pay no attention to any of that. He's the monster. He's the bad guy because he shouldn't have been there in the first place. That's the media angle of this. They're not, they don't care about the truth. They could not care less about the truth. They are telling you stories. They're shaping narratives. They're contradicting themselves, and they're hoping you don't remember the contradictions because it's all about orange man bad right now. All right, I've had my say with this. I I, want to end the show with this. 
um, how do I say this without making you all turn off your, your well, yeah, you're not because Russia's about to come on, so you're not turning off your radio. <laughs> um, I think the trend lines for this election are favorable to Joe Biden more so than Donald Trump. I do. Uh, I, I do believe that the president has, uh, in, in the question in 2016 that won the president, the election in the polling was, uh, if you hate both candidates, who are you voting for? And it was like five to one for Trump. And those people are breaking decisively for Biden now. Senior citizens are floating towards Joe Biden. And I, I, I need to start with that to get to this. Nobody knows. Nobody really knows who's going to win. There could be a blowout. Um, there, there could be a blowout for Donald Trump. Joe Biden could walk away with it. We have no idea. And I don't think that we should listen to anyone who's decisive. Because, you know, I, I, I do think the trend lines do favor Joe Biden. I, I do. But Donald Trump very much can win the election, and I'm going to go vote for him. And I, I think one of the things you have to be mindful of is you have a concerted effort by the American media, and there are a whole lot of people who very much do listen to the media, and it shapes their worldview, and the media for four years has been as antagonistic as possible to the president, and he's got less than two months to try to penetrate the conscience of those people and show them the media has been lying about him and, and storytelling about him in ways that aren't true. But no one really knows. And the polling is too close. Forget the national polling. The national polling is irrelevant to what's going to happen. It is the swing state polling that matters, and it's really, really close. And we don't know how people's frustration with the virus will build. We don't know about the economic rebound. By the way, uh, it, it, the employment rate down to 8 0.4%, uh, more than a million jobs created. We're trending in the right direction economically. And I do think at this point, listen, here's the bottom line for me. If every other aspect of the media has been broken by the president, maybe the pollsters are too. If you can't get a fair and honest report out of Jeffrey Goldberg in The Atlantic, who relies on anonymous sources to tell you exactly what you want to hear in direct contradiction to an anti-Trump book where every where the author is on the record, directly contradicting the key opening event of Jeffrey Goldberg's story, uh, Jeffrey Goldberg and The Atlantic are clearly broken. They don't want to address that contradiction. Uh, it, clearly, the president has broken them too. And if so many members of the media are that broken by this president, maybe – the pollsters are too. Maybe the pollsters are getting it wrong because of their own biases. Maybe the pollsters are modeling things wrong because of their biases. I tend to think given their need for corporate contracts to survive, they're trying to do the best they can, but there's always can be latent biases. I tend to believe the polling averages, not the individual polls, but the polling averages. And the polling averages look good for Joe Biden, but not good enough to win. Nobody knows. And I would be weary of anyone who really acts like they know definitively what's going to happen. You know, I was absolutely convinced in 2016 that 
there was no way Trump could win. Now, I didn't support him, and I wouldn't have supported him even if I thought he could win. I just, I, I, I couldn't support him in 2016. I'm supporting him in 2020. But I really thought he was going to lose. And and one of the things that I wrote after the election, after I got it so wrong, was, you know, I owe myself and my audience a level of humility in not telling you what's going to happen, but analyzing the present and giving you my opinion of where I think things could head. And in analyzing the present, my analysis is that we just don't know. It's very close. And there are too many variables that modern American pollsters have never had to deal with, including a virus. And how is the virus going to play out in people's minds by the time they go vote? And the economic turmoil and rebounds, how is that going to play out? We just don't know. And anyone who says they know doesn't know. Can the president lose the election? Absolutely, he can. And if the president loses, it's not going to be stolen. And I realize there are a lot of people who want to make that claim uh, because you want the president to win and you can't conceive in your bubble that there's any way he could lose. But if he loses, he'll lose fair and square, whether you want to accept it or not. And there are those who, who support Joe Biden who are so desperate for Joe Biden to win. If he loses, the only way he will have lost is if Russia stole it because they won't be able to conceive of the fact in their bubble that there were enough Americans and enough states who disdain him or like the president that they would go support Donald Trump against either Joe Biden or his policies. And those would be because, oh, the, the Russians stole it. Somebody had to steal it. There's no way Biden could have lost otherwise. No, in the same way that if Trump loses, he'll have lost fair and square. If Biden loses, he'll have lost fair and square. Neither side has any interest in being honest about the integrity of the process because it's all about power and, and pre-definitions and defining the playing field. But the fact of the matter is that one person is going to lose and that person will have lost fair and square. Will there be errors? Yes. Will there be issues? Yes. Will it be enough to matter? No. But nobody right now knows what that's going to be. Nobody knows the outcome. Don't believe anyone who says they do. There are too many things unknown at this time, and we're dealing with a virus that affects polling. We're dealing with pollsters who are as broken as the media. So who knows? I don't. I'm just trying to tell you on a daily basis what I think is happening and what the lay of the land is. And you shouldn't listen to anyone who claims to be a prophet uh, telling you exactly what's going to happen. That's my end of the day. How about that? Wisdom for you. Have a great Labor Day. I'm going to take Monday off and sleep, uh, and then I will see you guys on Tuesday after I've had a chance to do some serious grilling over the weekend. New to Medicare? Start now. Go to MyHealthPolicy.com to learn about some of the top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including plans for $0 a month in plan premiums, low out-of-pocket costs, and expansive provider networks. If you're thinking about a Medicare Advantage plan, MyHealthPolicy.com is a great place to go to find a plan that meets your needs. Learn more about your options. Even talk with a licensed insurance agent. MyHealthPolicy.com. New to Medicare? Go to MyHealthPolicy.com. With MyHealthPolicy.com, you can compare plans from some of the nation's top insurers. Start now to find a plan and apply online. MyHealthPolicy.com makes it easy to find a Medicare Advantage plan in your area, including plans for $0 a month in plan premiums, low out-of-pocket costs, and expansive provider networks. My decision, my Medicare. MyHealthPolicy.com.
New to Medicare? Go to MyHealthPolicy.com. With MyHealthPolicy.com, you can compare plans from some of the nation's top insurers. Start now to find a plan and apply online. MyHealthPolicy.com makes it easy to find a Medicare Advantage plan in your area, including plans for $0 a month in plan premiums, low out-of-pocket costs, and expansive provider networks. My decision, My Medicare. MyHealthPolicy.com. 